Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn at a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a legend, one of the greatest front people ever, from Murphy's Law, from Cavity Creeps, from Hose for one show, it turns out, the great Jimmy G, a.k.a. Jimmy Dresher, a.k.a. Uncle Jimmy, as he says he likes to be called on this show. More on all of this in one second, but this is a good one. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at LeftfordDamian. Uh, there is a Facebook page, a YouTube page, a TikTok page, an Instagram page, all for this podcast. All, all those can be found at Turn to the Punk on those platforms right there. If you want to support the show, tell all your friends about this podcast. Let them all know that there's this podcast that happens oh, hopefully twice a week, but sometimes it's just once a week with uh, punk rock legends talking about music. And uh, that is the way to support. You can also check out the band I play in. We are called Fucked Up. More information at fuckedup.cc. We will be going on tour with, speaking of legends, the legendary Super Chunk in the end of January into February along the West Coast of the United States into Canada. And we've got records and all that can be found over there at fuckedup.cc or fucked up on all those social media platforms as well. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, this is a good one. From the band Murphy's Law, Jimmy G is here. And believe me, this goes all sorts of awesome, interesting places. Uh, Jimmy uh, used to be known, obviously, by something else, not just Jimmy G. But as he says in this episode, you know, you grow up and you, you, you move past certain things. And this episode is really about, I don't know, perspective and, and just um, awareness. Jimmy's awesome. And his level of involvement in punk, like this is someone who was who spent their life in hardcore and just his understanding of this scene and, and the way it works and everything like that. I just find he's someone I could have talked to for hours. And this one uh, is, is shorter than it could have been. But you know what? Sometimes they you got to have room for those part twos. Spoiler alert on that. Um, Murphy's Law will be celebrating their 40th anniversary this Sunday, December 31st. At Kingsland Bar, or the Kingsland uh, Bar, I assume bar, but in New York, or Brooklyn, New York, and uh, they will be playing with the great Urban Waste, and it is going to be a fantastic show. Jimmy is, as I said off the top, one of the greatest front people 
to ever hold a microphone and I will not ramble on anymore. Check out, um, Murphy's law on social media and also on the internet for upcoming tour dates. I think they're going over to the UK or Europe sometime soon as well. And, uh, that's it. All right. Sit back, relax, and enjoy uncle Jimmy on turned out a punk. Jimmy, hey! thank you so much for coming on the show. Good, good, uh, good afternoon. It's afternoon. Yeah, noon. Well, it's <laughs> the time. I, I normally smoke before and after the podcast, but I feel like with yourself, it's very much part of the ritual to smoke during this podcast. Yeah. That's what you do with your friends, man. You relax and, and puff one and have a beer, or if you don't party, uh, <laughs> you have a cup of tea and uh, talk about things, but, uh, don't set your beard on fire, bro. That would be scary. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't I worry. I'm used... I can't put you out virtually. I'm used to the blowtorch, <laughs> so I definitely, uh, you know, I'm safe with the lighter. But I was going to say, like, last time I met you was when we played with you in the Gorilla Biscuits up here years ago, and I was straight edge then. So I feel like I robbed myself of this great opportunity that I'm I'm having <laughs> now with you. So I appreciate you doing this honor for me. Well, I think being straight edge at a certain point in your life is a wise decision. And, uh, cause I think, in a, in a, you know, when I started doing drugs and, uh, and marijuana is a drug, um, when I started doing drugs, it was at a point where I should be, uh, I should have been uh, getting, getting an education. And unfortunately, um, you, you reach a point in your life where you, you never, you never done, done learning. Um, but there's a point in your life where you need to learn, uh, especially, um, more so than when you're older. Um, because you have less experience. And um, unfortunately, I was doing this in elementary school and it affected me getting an education and it got in the way of uh, me focusing. I think also, uh, you know, I, I have I think I have ADHD. I'm, I'm getting checked out for that right now. But it's, it, it's a hard to hard to focus and smoking weed <laughs> doesn't make it easy to focus, but it helps you to unfocus from the negative things in life if you're doing it right. But I, and I was going to say, like, I think. Uh you know once again not a medical doctor in any way shape or form or a, a psychological uh or have any sort of degrees but i i will say from my experience doing this podcast many a lead singer myself included have adhd and i really do think you're like the front person's front person so i yeah. would not be surprised if that winds up being the case yeah i'm, I'm getting checked out for it right now because it's it's like um you know you know what's got me figured out is uh well never mind my whole life being what it is uh just all these memes i'm like hey that's me and hey, it's me mm -hmm. all, some, and the more you the more you look at these things online the more the algorithm get, gets you and the algorithm gets you and and they just send you more shit and i'm like well i need to get checked out for this because i think this is what's been fucking with my head <laughs> you know when you can't focus on tour i can't focus on shit and i and at, at home i can't i can't focus i'm trying to do 50 things at once and and, and there's too much fun to be had <laughs> and i'm trying to have fun with all the things at once so unfortunately yeah. Well, I think once you understand, like, yeah, the brain chemistry, it's all about these serotonin hits that we're getting, and yeah, and dop dopamine and serotonin, dopamine, exactly. And, uh, yeah, and and and, the, and and with ADHD, the dopamine is the big, the big thing, getting that dopamine rush. A hundred percent, and that's the uh, the problem with the world we live in. There's too much excitement. There's too much fun stuff, and I think for me, that's yeah. what the cannabis allows me to do. Is it allows me to kind of focus it down a little bit more. Yeah, I think the band has been my enabler because. Uh, I've been touring and playing in the band and keeping busy with the band for so many years, for going on 40 years now, 40 plus years. And uh, it's just been, it just kept me going and the dopamine rush going and constantly traveling and constantly being engaged with people and new people every day. 
and different situations. Tour is just a constant 24 hours of engagement. And uh, and even when you try to sleep for that four hours, um, you know, even then you're tossing and turning. But it's always you're always engaged. Your mind is always engaged with different stuff. So it's good. I think it's good. But and then you get older. And with everything, everything comes to an end. Um, it, it's like when the band slows down and you're home alone, what do you do? You know, I, I've chosen this life. So I don't have a wife and kids to keep me <laughs> busy. I have a ch- an old chihuahua who's, who's a, who doesn't run around too much anymore. But yeah, it's like, man, I'm home. What am I going to do now? So I, I get this motorcycle thing going where I, I'm getting into racing motorcycles, vintage Harleys. So. I, and I, I really do feel like, once again, not to stereotype all lead singers, but there's like a a certain psychological profile. And I mean this for us pure lead singers. Us, there's a, like there's a, we're the, a certain psychological profile that makes us do what we do, that, that makes us free to get up there and act the fool and be the MC and, and, and be the life of the party, no matter what's going on. But also it's the worst psychological profile to be in that position. Cause like you're saying, it's just, it's kind of a Peter Pan world where you never have to grow up. You never have to deal with, with anything outside of being that great life of the party for an hour and a half, yeah. two hours every night. Well, unfortunately my teachers, when I was in elementary school and, uh, and junior high school, uh, before I finally gave up and dropped out, just didn't see that. Um, I wasn't like, well, no kid is like the rest of the kids, but mm-hmm. some kids can form and, uh, and follow through, but I was always goofing off and entertaining and trying to be, uh, the focal point in the room. And, uh, also getting picked on for being different. And, um, you know, I think it's a, it's an educator's job to see a child, uh, when they're, when they're not in the loop with everyone else and try to foot, fit, fit them, fit them, fit them into, uh, the proper niche, uh, be it music, be it art, um, be it science, uh, you, you know, it, I just didn't get that in school. So I, I kind of, once I got into punk rock, I found my niche and unfortunately it didn't involve me going to school anymore because, um, I was against everything that I was being taught. Well, I then, agree with it. Well, and I think that's the great thing about punk rock is that it is a place where, of all the places you could have landed, I guess, in New York at that time, from what I've, once again, I didn't live there, but what I've seen and what I've, in movies and what I've kind of heard from people talking about, a lot of dangerous shit you could have landed that wouldn't have been a well, place. I was, I was in the middle of it, and then at times I was it, but uh, yeah, I couldn't have been in a better spot at a better time for a better music scene Um, in the transition of punk to... uh to hardcore punk and now to what whatever it is now with, with metal being involved in it and everything else. But it's, uh, it's definitely evolved and, and it, it definitely isn't dying as some people like to say, um, there's new, new, new bands, new kids. And even the old bands are bringing the old kids that are now grownups <laughs> and bringing their kids and their kids are starting bands. So it hasn't died. It's, it's traveled worldwide. And I was lucky to be at the, at the cusp of it all and, and uh, be part of it. And I'm still proud to be part of it. Yeah, like I think right now, like you're saying, it's bigger than it's ever been because there's just so, it's so there's so many individual scenes on top of scenes and waves on top of waves, but they're all healthy and they're all oh man the shows all, the shows in Europe if you see Agnostic Front's videos are massive and and in, in South America, I mean Japan now it used to be big for American bands to go to Japan now Japan has their own scene, um, you know bands visiting places uh, influence kids and the kids start their own scenes where they're at. And it's it's just it's just growing, you know. And and this isn't something, you know. This isn't like a big rock star scene like Kiss played last night, whatever. Uh, it, it you could be in a fucking garage or a warehouse, on on standing on pallets or on the floor, 
with your friends and uh you know you have a scene you yeah. know the kids show up they support they don't fight they don't destroy the place and it's 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 still growing i don't see it uh, dying maybe for some you know older bands the, the the scene dies away a bit for older people and uh you know the kids don't follow that anymore because they have their own thing and that's a good thing because it's evolving it's not diabol it's not it's not dying it's growing yeah no and i think that's the best thing about punk is that at some point there's going to be a younger scene and you're going to have to concede the fact that it's not they're going to do their own thing and it's going to be a different thing than you did but in the same way that you were different than the scene that came before you and obviously you're there for the first wave of this kind of happening like the rise of hardcore and the end of the first wave of punk is is i think the first time this really happens for our scene but it continues to happen it continues to evolve and that's what makes it great and vibrant and that's why there's no other scene like it because it does keep changing and keep getting better and not better but just different and more interesting because everyone's doing their own thing and i was thinking about this last night because i was thinking about that song the cavity creep song i've never heard the song but i've read about it pain from my i was in a band before murphy's law for a joke uh called the cavity creeps it was just me and my friends making a band and we couldn't play and we did it just because back in the day you could get into clubs by saying you were in a band so we started a band to get into clubs for free <laughs> and say you were a band so but according to legend you had this song called pain and during this song yeah. everyone would line up on one side of the room and form a wall of death and this is the first time that i can think of in music that the wall of death was ever done but now you think about these festivals in europe where there's thousands of kids doing the wall of death yeah, yeah. and we it's actually, like murphy's actually has a song we have a song called wall of death yeah yeah and that's that's we we wrote that a long time ago but yeah the pain song i don't know if it's us or agnostic front but we both did the pain song <laughs> and and uh it was just everyone screaming in pain i mean there's no <laughs> we all feel pain one part in our lives unfortunately but um definitely you know the whole it was all the whole part of, of venting and uh and us finding ourselves and not being musicians by far but being kids having fun and and um and releasing anxiety and, and aggression and screaming screaming definitely you feel better after screaming you know yeah. and uh that I, I guess the pain song definitely relieves pain and, <laughs> and the wall of that definitely causes pain so it's like a yin yang effect uh nicole panter who managed the germs you know she's in the decline of western civilization famously yeah. when she was on the show she described hardcore as being people with trauma inflicting trauma on other people and thus giving them <laughs> trauma to inflict on other people and that's I mean, uh, on certain nights, yeah, but for the most part, it's people making each other happy and supporting each other, I feel. Absolutely. I mean, young, younger days, yeah, when Darby Crash is cutting his chest and shooting heroin, yeah, uh, it's not that, it's not like that anymore. No. I it, mean, uh, there's, a, there's a community now, and uh, with these little boxes we got, we can communicate even better. Unfortunately, it's not always positive, um, and I think uh, there's a lot easier ways to promote bands, a lot easier ways to re record bands, a lot easier ways to be uh, a positive influence with music. And, uh, and it's not, not so much uh, where everybody's punching each other in the face lately. So, and that's a good thing because there's too much of that going on in the world with politics and government as it is. Well, that's the you thing know, is I, we, I, we need to, we need to be together. That's the thing. A hundred percent. And I feel that's what, like, I love, I was watching that video. It's one of my favorite videos in the whole world. And it's uh, Psychos with you doing the Void cover. Ah, it's that's so... the oldest footage, I believe, of New York hardcore music there is. Yeah. That's an A7 in the back. Well, and the thing is, that video is timeless because that video could be taking place 
today in some tiny room like obviously it's godly because of when it's from but i mean like that vibe of kids just having a great time slamming into each other no one's trying to kill each other everyone's just trying to have a good time and it just yeah we're just bumping each other up a bit but and, and now if you look at these uh these these uh, uh diy shows in in california they got like a fire pit in the middle of the uh, of the circle pit <laughs> yeah, and insane. these kids are playing in like a, a drainage ditch it's fucking awesome it's like it's still that the spirit as, as cliche as it sounds the spirit is still alive i mean it's just the same thing as it was when we were kids but now through this venue of, of uh digital technology you can promote a show uh, a renegade show for a saturday night in 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 a, in a day and round up round up a thousand kids you well, know it's, it's amazing well the, the way i normally start this podcast every episode is i ask the person how they got into punk but i know how you got into punk but i do i do want to hear it from you but i do think it's it's so fascinating like you're saying where the technology has gone from but your introduction to punk came through because <laughs> ancient versions of the technology we're doing right now right cb radio flyers and, flyers and it was like the paper almost like smoke signals it was like flyers and uh <laughs> wasn't um, it wasn't it the cb radio you hearing doug playing doug holland i believe playing uh you heard doug, um doug holland we, got, we were talking on cb radio yeah the, the neighborhood we had walkie talkies and everybody would talk to each other within a three block radius and uh and doug would play the sex pistols over the cb radio and uh, that's how I started to get into it. And also, you got Jack Rabbit. Um, who, Even uh, worse, who and Big Takeover. Wow, you're great, dude. You got it. Look at this guy. Did your homework. But yeah, Jack Rabbit would write me letters on the back of flyers for upcoming shows to keep me in loop. And I had to pick and choose my battles because it was like 15, or 14, 15. And uh, I'd go to a show, and I'd definitely break my curfew. And, and so if I went to a show, I was punished for a month. So I was really picking when I would go to a show, it would be like, well, here, I'm going to get the shit smacked out of me by my father and be punished. But it was worth it. So and here I am still <laughs> now. I, now I punish myself. <laughs> well, that's that trauma inflicting trauma on yourself, I guess, still, because that's the I think we're all brought to this because we need it. Yeah, well, my father infl inflicted a lot of trauma on me and a lot of the kids from Lower East Side back then uh, in the eight, seven days, we were all we didn't all come from good homes and even the good homes that a lot of us came from just because you live in a nice house doesn't mean what's going on in that nice house is good. So uh, a lot of us were together as a support group and we still are um, as, as, as grownups now, uh, this kind of grownups, but uh, it was uh, all kids from broken homes and abuse, ab abusive families. And my father was abusive through my life. And, and I found support um, through being with my friends who were going through the similar, similar stuff as me. You know, be it be it a, a, a physical, mental or, or sexual abuse in your home with alcoholic parents or abused parents and um, or mentally ill parents, all the above. We came from a, a tough set of people coming from a, a tough upbringing. So and and made music throughout it, which is a, a pretty, pretty impressive feat. I think I don't even think we knew what we, we didn't know what we were doing and where it would take us. I think that's the most thing, the the most incredible part about this whole thing is that it does become a place that's your chosen family. And that's still something about hardcore that it comes from, obviously, you guys is the first, one of the first hardcore scenes, but it's still something that I find survives to this day where it's a place where you can feel safe at its best. Like, obviously, there's, it's not always this case, but like when it's at its best, it becomes a chosen family and becomes a place where you can 
channel what you've experienced into art and and find celebration for that art and acceptance for that art in a place to exactly, exactly. it's so awesome like and i'm going friday with the with agnostic front after <laughs> them with their records out for 40 years and my band just together for 40 years and we're all friends from a7 all those guys in that video a lot of them are going to be on stage with me and i'm going to be on stage with them uh started friday and uh it's amazing it's amazing and it's a it's a, it's a gift sometimes if i feel like i'm cheating or something that i'm that we're all this old and I'm 58 and then he's 120 and <laughs> we're still, we're still playing shows, acting the fool and having fun, you know, and it's, it's a gift. It's unbelievable. And, and, and for agnostic front, it hasn't gotten smaller. It's gotten <laughs> huge and I'm, I'm happy for them. It's amazing. It's amazing what it's grown to. And it's amazing that we still do it. And I can't thank everybody enough out there for supporting it and supporting us and paying to get into shows and buying shirts and, downloading songs and everything that keeps a band running because uh whoever thinks it's not monetarily uh it's a, not a mon money thing you, you need money to go on tour you need money to rent the van you need money to get a place to sleep and for equipment and the only way we get that is by uh working shit jobs and having our, our fans and our friends support us and that's it's you know it's a give and take you you, you buy a shirt i'll sing a song <laughs> well, especially now where you like a fast food combo is twenty dollars like it is yeah well try to try new york dude 40 dollars, 35 dollars for a pizza now it's wild like it's it's definitely i'm not eating, I'm not eating that 99 cent shit <laughs> no well there's I'm no eating the good pizza but yeah it's <laughs> like it's so expensive where i live right now it's it's nuts and never mind trying to get an apartment here an apartment here forget it new york city uh the average average rent for an apartment is like 2500 dollars a month for a studio apartment you're living in a closet when it's wild how fast it happened it, like and it, it starts i guess on the lower east side right like in a kind of gentrification was in front of our eyes all the buildings you know where my grandparents grew up on uh, lived lived they didn't grow up they lived on avenue d in the projects and uh down where, from where a7 was like four, three four blocks down and um all the buildings were abandoned and uh, as a kid you don't know, understand the, the the logistics of things and and why things are the way they are you think the government and the city and everything should be making this not be be the way it is. There shouldn't be empty police places, uh, empty apartment buildings, and people sleeping on the street. That doesn't make sense. And then, in the blink of an eye, all of that real estate uh, flipped and turned into high end real estate. And uh, and there's still people sleeping on the street, unfortunately. But now there's a different class of people living in that neighborhood. Um, it was affordable, and now it's unaffordable. And now this whole city which was blue collar people uh, in my area in the story of Queens, which was right outside of the city where everyone that worked for the rich people in the city lived. So you'd live here and go over the bridge to the city and, and work. Now, now it's completely Brooklyn's unaffordable. All, all the outer boroughs are unaffordable now because super rich live in the city and rich live in the boroughs. And it's just, everyone's getting pushed out further and further. It's sad. We realize like people without money and don't, that don't have excess money live day to day you know and are worried about what they're going to hand do to, to mouth that's well now in this day and age um yeah i don't see the government the government's not here to help you well and that's the thing big money rich money they look yeah. long term and so they were playing they, the long term their, game. their their money yeah and they look out for each other yeah, yeah. and they were playing the long term game when they were letting new yeah. york go to shit they knew that they could eventually this real estate they're not going to make more of it you will eventually be able to flip these properties for billions. Look at the well, look at the controversy in Hawaii right now with all that property just got magically toasted. Now, right away, people are trying to buy it. Yeah, for a low, low, low ball in it. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm always one for a, a you know, a, a conspiracy theory, and there's definitely one there. Um, magically, all the all those people's homes burned, but the rich people's homes didn't for some reason. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm just a, a feeble bug on on a, on a little rock. But I, it's like, man, that's it's too hard not to think. Like, wow, that's crazy. Everything burned up except for like rich people's the mansions, and now the rich people are trying to buy everything else where the, everyone else lived. Yeah, go just, figure. Oh man. Yeah. yeah, well, I, I, there's I guess, a lot of shit that we think we know that we don't know. That's probably even worse than we think it is. So, oh yeah, and well, and I guess we can go back to stuff that we we don't stuff that's a little more pleasant to talk about, even though it is still unpleasant. Like that's why we light up a joint. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why. That's why we got the medicine right at hand. Uh, well, that's what another thing that I'm fascinated by is that sort of like period of New York hardcore that I guess we're kind of talking about, where you have stuff that's like. You know, eventually New York hardcore gets sonically a little more defined as something, but like there's that period where you got bands like Sacrilege and you have bands like Psychos, I guess Gilligan's Island, you know, your uh, Cavity Creek, like all these sort of like pre the bands that would become the bands. Um, yeah. It felt like it was such a cool, fertile time for punk music. Like, were you guys all interacting, playing together? Like, I don't share everybody was, Sacrilege. Well, I think everybody was jamming together and even more so now. You know, with the revolving door that Murphy's Law is and yeah. has been, uh, it's just like you look at how many people playing Madball. It's like Brendan in Madball plays in Murphy's Law, plays in in, <laughs> in sheer terror. I mean, but at our age and uh, the boomers that we are, as dickheads like to call some of us, uh, we, uh, you know, a lot of guys grow up and they got kids, they got grandkids, they got jobs, they own businesses now, they have homes. The girls too, the women as well on the scene. Um, have to take care of their families and uh, that play in bands. And it's like, you got to cut, cut and slice your time. So to have a single band unit at our age is very difficult because you're going to find one person that just bought a house or is trying to buy a house or about to get married. His wife's having a kid or, 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 or vice versa. It's like, so you need to find people to manage time. You need to keep it going. So you, you need a group of people that all know everybody's songs to jump in at any time. Well, that's what, and also so. punk and hardcore feels like you're on this uh, island and eventually everyone's, everyone's spread out at first. And then as the island gets smaller and smaller, as you get older, you wind up realizing like, Hey, we're all, in the, we're, there's only so many of us less. Let's start bands together. Like all the beefs that we used to have, forget about them. Cause like, uh, it's, yeah, it's, well, yeah. If, if you're still carrying beef from when you're 15 years old, you got to get serious. You got to get a life. Um, I mean, it, it, unless, uh, unless the I don't I don't I, I can't even imagine why you carry beef that long unless somebody murdered your fucking sister or something. Right? But it, it's like, you know, the childish things. There's many childish people still on our scene, as and I, they, they shall be nameless. But I'm sure it runs to people's minds. I think also there's a lot of mental illness that's set in with people. If you see certain certain ramblings and rantings that go on uh, with certain groups and certain people. Um, I think it's just mental illness. And I think other people feed off of it and think it is a comedic thing where it's a joke, but it's also sad that some people that are, uh, were great in our scene are also just struggling mentally and find so much anger and hate towards former members of their bands or, or just their scene in general and just, uh, continue to, uh, just, uh, spew this diarrhea of hate and negativity when our scene's supposed to be a positive thing. 
Well, that's you're right because I think there's like it's a, mental illness. I think a hundred percent. A lot of people flip. Hundred percent. No, I agree with you because I think, yeah. and we live in a there's a very complicated relationship, not just in punk, but in all of rock and roll with mental illness, where we tend to romanticize it and like it becomes something that becomes well, we benefit from it too, but through this art that we get from these people, but then it's mental illness, so it is a double edged sword, and there's eventually going to be a side of it where these people need need support and need kind of like a yeah. uh, little sensitivity. Yeah. In a right, in a righteous way that I could name one person before I get into the talking shit mode. Um, HR, for instance, HR was struggling with mental illness and I don't feel he was getting much support from his interior uh, people. And then finally it, it came about that he started to get support and started to get help and, and is showing a lot of, uh, a lot of growth and a lot of improvement, but he was struggling. HR was a very powerful, strong individual on our scene. And, uh, and something set in, in his head and the wheels were not turning on all, all on all fours. And, uh, he kind of was going willy nilly and people were entertained by it when it, and when it was something very sad and somebody needed help that was in our community and finally is getting it. And I'm happy that he is finally, uh, but I, I do know that he's getting these really bad headaches and stuff too. And I really feel bad that he's struggling with his health. A lot of us are, but that, that that's what happens with age. Yeah. And I think, you're, I think you're, that's a perfect example of someone who like, you know, I'm talking to someone who's in that category right now, but like in terms of a front person, like one of the greatest to ever hold a microphone, and the fact that he was not treated with some sort of reverence and the fact that it became kind of a mockery at a certain point when like, it's clear that he was struggling for mental health, like even the most outside people and he's talked about yeah. it now. So I'm not like I'm letting a cat out of the bag, but it was like that. No, 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 no. Yeah. He was like that for years. And then it was, well, then it was people blaming it, blaming it on drugs, but he was doing drugs to cover up his mental problems. And, and then it just escalated, which happens to a lot of us and myself included. And uh, it's, it's a, it, you know, that's what this part of this scene is about. You can't, there's no normal people, period, in any community. And um, if you think you're normal, you really have a problem because no one's normal. We all have our issues. And uh, that's part of being human. Um, it's just how, how you deal with it and who you surround yourself with when you're dealing with it. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people that benefit from, especially when you're in a band, keeping the show on the road. And sometimes the show huh. needs to be taken off the road. <laughs> Yeah, you find that member that can't handle that sixteen-hour drive, or, yeah. or or that just can't that has other issues at that's going on at home. That once they leave home, um, it it grows tenfold because the the mindset kicks in. I've had people lose their shit on tour, and I've lost my shit on tour. But it's it's when you're when you're with people twenty people don't understand. It's like why why have you had so many members? I'm like in forty years, who have you worked with steadily for forty years? I mean, and slept with. And, you know, you go to you get in a, in a vehicle to commute to work. All right. If your hour, if your, your commute's an hour, that's a long time. Sometimes my hour, my commute to work is 16 hours or, or 24 hours or, or 10 hours in a van with everyone, you know, snoring, farting, eating whatever disgusting egg salad in the van. It's disgusting. People yep. get on your nerves. Yep. And then you got to share a room with somebody. You're never really alone on tour ever. Never. And uh, then you get home and it's like crickets. Uh, you know, it's, it's a tough, it's, it's not an easy life, but then again, you could also stand in front of a lot of people screaming, smiling and having a great time and loving you. And that's an amazing feeling that not many people get. And I'm very fortunate to have had it for a good portion of my life. Well, and, and also lucky. The, 
Well, and I think the, not to cut you off, but the, the influence you've had too. And the fact that like, this is a, a scene that you built, you know, this is like, like obviously hardcore wasn't invented in New York titularly, but like New York. Hardcore. No, no. Calif California was doing a lot. And so was DC and Boston. Uh, please Vancouver, my friend DOA. And, and, and like we have well, to. DO, DO, DOA definitely, I, DOA was playing a seven as well. And I definitely learned a lot from Canada. Well, and also, I think part of your that was history... one of the first. I think that was the first country I went to. That was the first country <laughs> I left uh, America to. It's kind of easy to get in, though. Well, no, it wasn't easy to get in back then. No, and it's still not. <laughs> my strip now... search, actually. Yeah, now it might be harder. You know, this time it was the easiest time ever. It was so easy oh, to get in. I'm glad. Well, I was going to say, because I think DOA also plays a, a huge part in your history, because I think the first Murphy's a lot appearance is against that doa show right or doa was booked to play irving plaza and you guys played another news party right it's their homework yeah and uh their show was really expensive and uh our show was not and it wasn't even our show i guess uh i think jesse malin his, his band heart attack and i think mdc i'm not sure who else played but we played this place the plug club which turned into the original green door parties which turned into coney island high uh, but that was a guy, Giorgio Gromowski. And uh, Giorgio Gromowski was uh, the producer for the Yardbirds, and he managed the Rolling Stones. And he had this art space, I think it was 38th Street, up from Billy's Topless Bar. And uh, he uh, he had the space, and he let Jesse do parties there. And we played uh, New Year's Eve. That was and this was the, their, their anniversary coming up now. But that's what kind of set things off. Yeah, so we were, it, was the, it was called the Opposition Party, if, if I do recall, on the flyer. And it was opposing that show because it was <laughs> that show was like twenty bucks. Twenty bucks that was a lot of money for a show. Oh, absolutely. That, and I guess that's also speaks to like what we were talking about earlier. Like in hardcore, there's always going to be like that next wave that's going to come in and be like, "Well, your shows are too expensive, or they're our bands can't play it. We're going to have our own space, and we're going to find." Even though <laughs> the Rolling Stones manager seems like a pretty amazing spot to have. Uh, hardcore shows at. Wow, that's at the wild. point that he was doing it and also doing the Yardbirds, and, and I, I'm yeah. not sure else we did. But uh, yeah, he. If you look him up, uh, he's got quite a history, and I'm I'm lucky to have called him a friend. He's not with us anymore, but he was quite the character, amazing guy. Um, all, go on, sorry. And he helped. He helped it happen. So <laughs> I thank him for that. Well, that's the amazing thing about New York too. Is like it feels like as as much as there is like obviously class divides, that downtown New York kind of art punk you know street rock and roll intersection there's a lot of like interesting characters like williams burroughs being at cbgb's or or like andy warhol stuff obviously prior to that but there feels like there is like a lot of intermingling that wouldn't happen in any other city absolutely I, the the club scene in new york back then was uh quite the melting pot of everybody graffiti writers uh, uh classic classically trained artists um classically trained musicians uh maniacs drug addicts drug dealers uh drag queens uh you name it fashion designers um models everybody gangsters uh, the whole the whole gambit uh all in one room having a good time nobody shooting each other or anything and having a great time and and turning turning things into collaborations and creativity and uh, also living together in areas. Now, this is when Soho was still a factory area. Mm. Now, it's $20 million. You know, once artists make a place cool and musicians make a place cool, the rich move in and push the artists out. And 
then they wonder why their neighborhood's not cool anymore. Um, Lower East Side, same thing. Artists, musicians, little clubs, everything. Rich people move in and push everybody out. And then now it's just the places that all these people try to escape to move somewhere cool is now they just made it where they try to get away from. It's like, you know, I'm not I'm not one for a twenty dollar cappuccino, man. And that's what they're doing in the Lower East Side right now, unfortunately. Yeah, and it just feels like well, I remember when more recently when when Vice opened their office on the Brooklyn waterfront and, and it was on top of all those DIY venues that got shut down. <laughs> it's like, why not just open a space in the basement of your building? and say, this is a DIY venue. Like anyone can come book this space and at least foster the kind of stuff that brought you to that neighborhood. That doesn't, that doesn't help the growth of capitalism. That no. they're, they're, they're trying to make money, not spend money. And uh, that opening up a, an artist space and venue would be smart in my, in my opinion, in your opinion. Um, and I think that would be great in, in, uh, for a good look for Vice as opposed to going out and looking for things, they could go right where they're at and create mm -hmm. things and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and nurture stuff. And, and they have the money to do it or had them. I don't know what they got, but easily could have uh, got the vice offices and had a creative space beneath it, which would have made, made vice look a lot cooler than they think they are. Um, really? Cause it would help nurture art and music. And I, you know, I don't, maybe, maybe they don't think like, I don't think they think like that. I think they're thinking of selling, not uh, spending. So they're, they're trying to make money, not spend it. Well, and that's the thing is because then these companies have to spend, you know, like they're always spending money to try and get these cool things after they're there instead of, like you're saying, fostering them. Like not, you don't have to sponsor them, but like just give it the space instead of impeding the space for it. Like you look at, I was still talking about Sweden in the 90s when you had all this. Bring up Europe, yeah. Yeah, like how big music got from Sweden. And then you talked to all these bands, there were like, community centers that had full recording studios with full gear and practice spaces and that's, that's all of that's all of europe that's your everywhere you go in europe belgium everywhere and you play uh some of these uh, especially Bel belgium has beautiful venues mm -hmm. and it's part of arts and culture and the mm -hmm. government helps to support it mm -hmm. and uh you know if the, if, if the promoter doesn't make the nut at the door the government takes care of the band it's like they're supporting art culture and music even foreign art culture and music which helps people chill and helps people be better people i think uh and you know here here we, we 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 shut we shut down venues we shut we shut down skate parks um we we cut the budget on music and art classes uh you know in new york right now we're cutting the budget on the on the fire department <laughs> yeah i guess going back to like what that's why i think new york hardcore to me is so awesome and so amazing because you can talk about D.C. and obviously there were money. Not everyone had money, but there was money in D.C. You talk about Boston. It's yeah, a lot of kids came from came from people money. Sure. Yeah. And in, in Boston, like <laughs> there, it's working class in a lot of cases, but there was there was means there were stable homes that kids were coming from. But like New York, yeah. you know, not to stereotype, but like from my understanding, it's like homeless kids in some cases. And there's there's kids, with homeless means, kids but... sleeping in Tompkins Grove Park. Uh, staying in uh, C squat, multiple squats, all living together in, in, in abandoned buildings, you know, and uh, and all working in nightclubs together and all struggling to get together, together yeah. and not alone. That's the problem with a lot of people that are homeless. They're alone. And uh, I think a lot of us wouldn't have done as well as we've done had we not had the scene that we came up on and uh, and not the support group that we've had and still have to this day. Uh, 
I feel for the people that have nothing, you know, that, that we just went past the holiday here, Thanksgiving, which has a lot of meanings to me. Um, and it's not about uh, pil pilgrims and it's about being thankful, taking a moment to be thankful for what you have around you and in you and, and, uh, and in your life. You know, you might you might be uh, laying on the street right now, but you might have a really cool dog that you got. There's something to be thankful for. Mm -hmm. Somebody just put five bucks in your cup. Something to be thankful for. You know, there's children being born right now with cancer and 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 horrible diseases that don't even know anything. They don't know if people are black and white. They don't know. Uh, they don't know Muslim or Catholic. All they know is that they're not well. And and you know, you need to be thankful for every morning you wake up and take a deep breath and and can stand up. You know, and and change and change things. Be it yourself or the world around you. So, like, what was in that cup of coffee? <laughs> it's the coffee and the cannabis. It's the the hippie speedball they call it, right? Yeah, I just had quite the hippie speedball. Um, I just got a new coffee machine. I just push a button and coffee comes out. <laughs> I heard. Uh, I heard in a podcast, it might have been Hardcore Chronicles, New York Hardcore Chronicles, that you were. Uh, you were you were going to be the drummer in Kraut at one point. Or that you... was that was that was the plan. My grandfather James Fernavante, uh Let me. I got a picture of him. Hang on. Give me... Yeah. Uh, I only have like three pictures of him. He uh he died before I was born, and uh, that's the picture of him right there. Oh man. <laughs> that he made that drum kit and uh, he played drums well, self-taught and I never met him. He died before I was born. So I was always intrigued by what my mother would tell me by him about him. And, uh, I wanted to be like my grandfather that I never met, uh, cause he sounded way cooler than everything else that was going on around me. And, uh, I don't have, I don't have the gift of the rhythm that he did, I guess. <laughs> I do have the gift of the gab. At least I had that. Uh, was that, was that before the seven inches that you tried out for him or was that after the singles? Oh, that's before I, they did anything. This is when I was still in junior high school. And then uh, I think awesome. I was in sixth, seventh grade, seventh or eighth grade, seventh grade. That's when Johnny Feedback uh, blessed me with the cursed name of Gestapo, uh, which is which has bit me in the ass throughout my life. Um, <laughs> now it's Jimmy G, quite. just Jimmy G. You know, it's, it's time to grow up and know that uh, some, when you got a dumb negative nickname, you need to uh, step away from it. Uh, I get it especially in this, this day and age in this world. It's just a, it's just a dumb nickname to have. Well, um, try playing in a band called Fucked Up now, where you can't search it on the internet. You can't be on Facebook with it. It's, it was funny. That, everything, everything's fucked up, so you get a lot of... It's that. It's, it's also like every algorithm thinks you're talking about something way worse than a fat guy yelling into a microphone. Yeah, that's probably that's probably kind of tough to get that, to get that out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But um, I'm sure there's there's a lot of other bands you could mention that have worse names. Than way worse. Nowhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that people uh, didn't judge the book by its cover and and got to know me before they judged me for my my foolish nickname. Um, and uh, uh you know, I, it, 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 if any, it turned into a blessing more than a curse in a lot of ways because a, a lot of a lot of people came to me and tried to confront me on it, and it turned out to be uh, rather than a, a confrontation, a friendship. Because it, the name is not the person. And uh, unfortunately, I got stuck with that name instead of Jimmy Friendship or Jimmy Nice Guy. <laughs> but that, that doesn't roll off the tongue as well, though. <laughs> no. Growing up in it, I didn't even associate it with the negative connotation of your name because I'm like, oh, that's just who you are. And I'd always heard that you were like, as much as you had a fierce, uh, you know, a fearsome reputation of the mosh pit, that you were always like 
a really funny guy. And anytime I saw you guys live or saw video, you know, you always seemed very affable. So for me, it just seemed like a weird coincidence. You know? I give people back what they give to me. I'm, I, I could be the, the nicest guy in the world or the meanest son of a bitch <laughs> I ever met. But yeah, it, you know, if somebody's nice to me, I'm nice back. And that's how everybody should be in life. If, as opposed to uh, people just being on the defensive all the time. I, I, I try to open myself up and be nice. I try to make a friend every day. If I jump out my, I'm going to go out on my bike a little bit. I go on my bike, go for a ride in my neighborhood. I'll try to, Hey, what's up? You know, make a friend every day, say hello to somebody, be nice to somebody every day, try to make somebody's day better. Doesn't cost you anything. Doesn't take much effort. Smile, say hello to somebody, make somebody's day feel a little better. One band that had a a name that was used a lot in punk, but might not have been a great name to tour with back then if they had toured was the KGB. Do you remember a band called the KGB that Vic Benham was in? We we played with KGB yes. and GBH at the Rock Hotel. Yeah. Yes, you did. I think that might have been a New Year's Eve show. Yeah, there's a flyer for it. That is Fred Armisen, yeah. the comedian. That was his band that he was the drummer in. No way. Yeah. Know. And I That's asked amazing. him about it. He has very little memories of being in the band other than that they played with you guys that one time. But I knew That's your memory. I remember that. Oh, I knew your memory would be, I could rely on on this one. Well, I, I worked at, at the Rock Hotel, um, which was the Jane Street Hotel on the west side of Manhattan. And the Jane Street Hotel was a pretty, back then, you could literally like rent the closet for a couple bucks a night. And it was, a, it must have been a, a really nice hotel years ago. And it is a boutique hotel now, um, again. Uh, but it must have been a beautiful hotel back in the day. But when it was Rock Hotel, that's the good thing about punk rock. We always find a place that's struggling and, uh, and they welcome us in uh, that that has space and we make the best of it, turn it into a venue, turn it. And unfortunately, these little places succeed and then we get pushed out. Um, <laughs> but the Rock Hotel was that it was a hotel that had like a, a theater space in it. And that's that's uh, how we did shows there. And that's where that show was. But I don't I don't I remember I think Uncle Al, my old guitar player, uh, made a, a flyer. It said a uh, limey. Limey GBH, Kami KGB, and then it said Murphy's. I think that was the it was a Where's the Beef uh, flyer. Might have been. Well, I can't believe my memory. Where's the Beef was this old lady for Wendy's. I was like, Where's the Beef? Yeah. So we were like, Where's the Beef? Here's the Beef, and, and it was like, yeah, it was like a, a, a political poke at them. That's awesome. That's too funny. GBH are great friends of mine. Eh? Oh yeah, one of the uh, yeah, I think like just... one of the British bands that all, all the New York bands seem to love and seem to be like down with all the hardcore kids. Still to this day, they're down. Yeah, they're well. They're they're family. They're you know when when you travel, some bands travel and they don't step out from behind the, the backstage. Or when you travel, you go out and make friends. And and in forty years or forty plus years for them, but traveling, they've made great friends and fa- they're like family. You know those guys. You know I've known them since I'm a kid. Mm-hmm. I've known them since before I was in a band. And one of the reasons I'm in a band is because of them. So there's this whole nurturing, growing. <laughs> thing and 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 when you know people that long you know without any difficulties or drama you know they it's a blessing to have people like that in your life for that long especially when your heroes become your friends was your first show the buzzcocks was that the first concert you went to no my first show was doug doug holland's band uh he had a band apprehended and they played a club here i'm in i'm in the story of queens uh down the block by the projects, not such a great neighborhood still to this day. Uh, there was a beautiful Art Deco space called Exile, and like beautiful Art Deco doors and Art Deco fixtures. And then you enter the room, and it's like a small 
um, the, like a theater, I don't know, not a movie theater per se, but because it was it had a flat floor. Movie theaters usually have the slant. Um, the little ba- balcony, and they played in there. And I, I remember I was like, I was like, oh. and then I think that was that was the first a taste in it. And it was a lot of girls, and it was a lot of fun. And, <laughs> and then I went to Max's Kansas City, and I saw the stimulators, and that that was uh-huh. it. Then I was done. That's when me and Harley became friends, and that was it. Was the beginning of a different life for me. You know, because I was like, this is this is this is what I like to do. This is what I people I like to be around. And this is what I I like. I like music. I like I like people that make music. I like people that make art and people that help music be created. You know, the whole the whole process around it. I like I like all of it. Producers, engineers, artists, uh, pressing plant people, everybody. The whole fucking thing is awesome. And all the people that make music happen and make it get out. It's awesome. What was Max's Except like? Except for the record label people, they could. Max's, <laughs> Max's. When I first went to Max's, Max's had the that da- it had a downstairs that had the restaurant, which was famous. And I think the on the Max's sign it said chickpeas and steak. <laughs> I never had. I never. Well, I was a kid, so I didn't have any fucking money, so I never had the chickpeas and steak. But um, I remember having soup down there. But it, the the bar downstairs with the restaurant was really cool. But by the time I was I was underage, so even getting in there was a challenge. And uh, because I mean, 13 years old. Yeah. Now, Harley was like 12 in there and uh, we were still getting beers and shit in these fucking clubs. We didn't serve that 13 years old in a club. Um, And then even better, I'm I'm sure much of the dismay of 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 like the talking head people and all that, that genre of of fancy punk um, that, that the restaurant got closed. And they made it an arcade, so that's <laughs> that. That definitely helped the evolution of uh, punk to hardcore because we were all hanging out in the arcade because we were all underage kids, and then would go upstairs and watch the Harley play or or um. What the fuck? Uh, trying to think of the band. Do you ever see the Mad? Uh, I I saw well the Misfit. I, I never saw the Mad, but I was friends with Scream Mad George. Oh my gosh! Uh, and those, George is a great guy. George those videos are amazing of them where he's yeah, like that, disemboweling himself. That, yeah, well he. He became he became a special effects guy, reanimator. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Son of reanimator, and uh, but he uh that that uh that record eyeball the art that he did he would do a lot of art for uh, the early stimulators flyers and like the misfit I don't know if he did the misfits but he did a lot of flyer art as well. Mm-hmm. There was also a fanzine called Damaged Goods that did a lot of really cool. The guy Donnell, I don't know. I'm g- g- branching off of his Please, AD, no, ADHD go. guy. Go. Um. There was a guy, Donnell, who played in a band called The Influence from New York Hardcore that gets no uh, respect, and they should. Nobody knows about them. They're not, you know, they're not talked about. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, the, they're, they're African-American black guys um, from Queens. A guy, Rerun, uh, was the singer. Uh, Donnell was, I don't know if he's the bass player. It was a long time ago, but he did this amazing art. He did a, a lot of great. Uh, early flyers of the Bad Brains and the Beastie Boys and such, but uh, he did the art on uh, a fanzine called Damaged Goods that was amazing. A lot of really cool art uh, in it. Uh, just even, just even um, the font, the font on the writing and stuff on on everything was really done well, um, done well by Donnell. But uh, yeah, that, I don't know where I was going with that. But uh, he, like Scream Mad George, he had a lot of art and everything. Mm-hmm. And now it's like you know, fucking people do a flyer on. On a computer, there's no personality in it. it. You could see that, you know, you go to Flyer Creator app, you know, and no, it's like a lot of work went into flyers and stuff. Flyer art was a big part of the scene. So people collect them. People now, you know, it's like, ah, another thing gone. But Donnell, the influence, if anyone could find 
any of that. I don't think they ever put a record out even, but I think there is recordings out there. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, I think I saw his, you know, kind of in the era of Instagram, of course, all the stuff's getting posted about and rediscovered a little bit more. But I think it goes to speak to how many incredible artists there were at that time. Like, hand style. How many people did graffiti? Like, how many people had you oh, know like yeah. that urban yeah, styles yeah. book that freddie alva did or tony, uh, tony did yeah. that's just fucking unbelievable that's got like yeah a lot know. a lot of guys are doing graffiti then a lot of girls everyone doing graffiti then yeah um or everybody's just writing their band's name on a wall everywhere they went this is our own form of graffiti the subways are fucking nuts i mean like what floor to ceiling interior and exterior just graffiti it was crazy um <laughs> Yeah, but but everyone was doing art. Everyone was, you know, when, when you're a kid, you like doodling, and everybody's doodling. But mm-hmm. some people doodle better than the others. Um, <laughs> it's like Mir, uh, Mir, which is Dave Parsons. The Dave Parsons, I, it was Dave from Ratcage. Okay, yeah. And he was the one who put out the first. Uh, he put out the the first Bad Brains seven inch pay to come, I believe. Uh, as well, I think Jack Flanagan from the Mob did that too. Um, and I think they put out the first Beastie Boy seven inch as well. Yeah, and Young and but Useless. And... Great, he he did great art as well too. He did uh, great flyer art and such too. Great great guy. He passed away. He was actually a Charlie Chaplin. He was the number one Charlie Chaplin impersonator in the world in Switzerland, and he was based out of Switzerland. What really? Yeah, like that's crazy, wild. Yeah, yeah, it goes to show like the uh, interesting people that kind of came out of this punk scene, or that were drawn to it, and then found like other creative places to. To go be a oh, Charlie Chaplin impersonator, or yeah, well, I mean, people grew up to be movie directors and producers and famous artists and fam- famous musicians. Even uh, you know, a lot of people grew up and uh, took it to the next level. You know, took their took their uh, took their hobbies to uh, the career level. You know, which is amazing that you can have such a, a following to the point where you can make a living and then some. That's that's commendable. Well, I find it also interesting doing this podcast, how it stays with people. Like you talk to Fred Armisen about this stuff and it's still like he carries with, that's what's like a religion, right? Because it's something that even if you leave it, it's like Catholic guilt afterwards. Like you still think about this thing and the, and the morals and ethics. Yeah. I was raised Catholic. So I know about that guilt, but yeah, (laughs) he can always go to, he can always go to concession and talk to Vinny Stegman and be forgiven. Um, Who Vinny? It was just Vinny's birthday yesterday, so happy birthday, Vinny! I think happy he's ninety-five birthday. now. Yeah, <laughs> got to be 70, 70. Did you ever see his band like that? Because he had a punk capital P kind of punk band first, right? Yeah, the Eliminate Eliminators. Yeah, did you ever yeah, see the Eliminators? Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of times. But yeah, he had like the spiky punk, 
pompadour thing going. And he had these uh these stickers like stigma kills. And, bef- and back then, the punk scene, nobody, not really had many tattoos. He was the first guy with a lot of tattoos. So he That's... definitely influenced, uh, no, no pun intended, um, he influenced uh, the tattoo thing, I believe, on the New York hardcore scene, which he did. <laughs> if anything, it's amazing that Vinny Stigma was an influence, and he still is very influential. And his positive energy and and his funny way of going through life is... Uh, is we can learn a lot from Vinny Stigma. The stigmaisms. Yeah, I agree. I like. I think he's just first time I met him. You know, he was like a, a legend, and just he gave me a hug, and I'm like, and then say first time I met you, I got a hug too, and it was just like we had played together, so it was, but I was just like a fan going up to Vinny, saying introducing myself, and he gave me a hug, and it was just like, wow, this is so like where else but punk could you meet a legend. And then just give you a hug, hello. You know, like I don't That's think a good way of starting things with a hug. Yeah. Nobody wants to punch you after you hug them. No, exactly. <laughs> just like, but I don't know. There's just, uh, uh, just like what a special place that this thing was. Like, and you always hear stories about how like interactions with that first wave of punk people, Johnny Thunders. You know, people had legendarily poor interactions with Johnny Thunders. Did you find that when you were first getting into it with the older generation? He was- I mean, Johnny Thunders was a junkie. So he was, uh, I saw, I saw him play at Irving Plaza and he didn't even know he was on stage and, and stepped forward, unplugged his guitar. It was a sloppy mess. Mm. And I, I had been a sloppy mess on stage before being intoxicated and, and dumb. Uh, but you know, that's part of the illness, uh, not part of the solution that we get from our scene. Um, yeah. He, you know, also I had a bad, bad interaction with Johnny Ramone when I was on tour with him, but you know that's negative stuff. I'd rather there's I, there was so much more positive stuff that I got out of the scene. But that's people being e- ego egos and egos and addicts don't make the best friends. Yeah, well, no, and I only bring it up because I find like that stuff can also be just as informative as the good interactions on how you go forward as a person in a band. Yeah, but it, you, well, you learn how not to be. Exactly. You don't. You know, once you once you're disappointed in meeting someone. Yeah. You don't want to be that person. Mm-hmm. And so if anything, you learn, you learn from other people's mistakes and you learn from other people's behavior, um, how not to be or how to be. And, yeah. uh, you know, meeting Charlie Harper at state of my house, the UK stuff state of my house, wow, you know, it's like <laughs> the great guys. And they're my friends to this day, you know, yeah. Yeah. Johnny bad, ta- bad taste didn't have to behave the way he behaved when I was on tour. I'm not going to get into it, but he was just really out of his way to be a douche and See, whatever. I still, I still made peace with him at his grave when, uh, my friend Howie Pyro passed away, and they they buried him not too far from Johnny's spot. So I put my hand on Johnny's thing. I was like, ah, "We're good." <laughs> As I walked away, he still laid there. So, I mean, I you know I made peace with him. I made peace with myself by not hating on the guy after burying my friend right there. But Hollywood forever, if you ever go, if you're ever in Hollywood, um, that's where Howie Pyro is. It's where Mickey Rooney is. Total the dog. Johnny's there. Um, Dee Dee uh, uh, Dee Dee's there. A lot of famous people buried there, but it's a pretty amazing cemetery if that's your bit. Yeah. Like I, I just I just came back from Argentina and I went to uh, Vita Peron's grave, which is pretty oh, amazing wow. in, in Argentina. Really creepy gr- graveyard. Yeah. Well, I think it's fun it when you're on tour. Well, when you're on tour, you got to go like you got to stay busy in those downtimes between when you're on stage and keep your mind occupied and and like taking in the history of a place. Lately, I haven't had downtime. Unfortunately, I was thinking about it. And we don't really get many days off. And now when I do get a day off, I just, I just fucking stay in bed or I jump in the pool if there's a pool and try to re, re, uh, recharge my batteries, dude. Because it's like 
Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not running out to, I'm not running and John Joseph gets up at like fucking five in the morning on tour <laughs> and goes running. I'm leaving the bar at five in the morning and running to go to sleep for a little bit. But yeah, two different, uh, two different parts of the spectrum. But well, I've watched you eat buffalo wings on stage, so I think it's different lifestyle uh, <laughs> choices at that point. Too. Yeah, I can't, I can't do the buffalo wing on stage anymore. But I will eat a slice of pizza anywhere though. <laughs> I think uh, I, I lucked out with Johnny, and I met Johnny one time. I went out for dinner with him because uh, a teacher in my high school was friends with him and through poster trading and had a really good interaction with him. But he's legendarily comes up on this podcast as someone that people had bad interactions with. And it's just as much as I guess some people can have bad days, some people can have good days. And I feel like I lucked out with him on my one day that I – Went over he had a lot of bad days. That a guy. lot of bad days. A lot of people have a lot of bad stories. Joey was Joey was a saint though. Joey should be a saint. Uh, Joey was the best. Joey came to my house for barbecues, hung out with my dad in Queens. You know, big yeah. Manitoba and my dad and Joey Ramon <laughs> on Fourth of July on my on my my back patio in Loyal City, Queens. And, and I was like, it's just surreal. My dad's talking shit with, with Joey Ramon and and Dick Manitoba. Pretty pretty amazing. That's but, awesome. Um, I wish I had I had a picture. I don't know how to fucking picture it because that's when you didn't have pictures on these things. I had picture, a actual picture. I lost the picture. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. Yeah, because that's like yeah. Was, well, that's I think the dictators are another group that um. Yeah, the dictators were ahead of their time. I mean, their shits in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, whatever that means. Um, they played the show that Kiss got signed know, at. A lot, there's a lot of dead people stuff in that place, but uh. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, uh, Richard's been my friend for a long time. Another person, you know, I know since I'm a kid that that, that treated me right. Um, you know, it's, it's sad. People are getting older and people are kicking off, dude. You know, unfortunately, Charlie Harper's about to be 80 years old from the UK subs. And still like the, the legend. Like, you know, I, we played with him in Winnipeg 10 years ago. And it was just, they were cool as shit. Like, just like the nicest. Nice, dude. nice nice guy have yeah. a beer with you relax talk shit <laughs> yeah and they get up and sing eight years old yeah lux yeah. interior too uh rest yeah. of soul lux interior from the cramps was like 70 75 or 70 something before he passed unfortunately did you ever see them at, too. did you see them at max's when they played no i saw them at limelight i saw them a couple i saw them at the ritz i actually did security for them and, and drove them around when they did uh limelight which was Pretty crazy. I just got a, a new van, which is a rarity in my life. And uh, and Lux and Tyrion and Ivy, I picked them up from the airport, and they were sitting right behind me in the van. And I'm looking at my rear mirror, and I'm like, "There's Lux, Lux had that weird oblong like Doyle head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they look. He looks like a monster without monster makeup on. And there's Ivy, and I'm looking. I almost crashed the van like 20 times. Just stared at them like I can't believe. Ivy and Lux are sitting behind me in my van. And they were like the most normal behaving people, but the weirdest pe looking people ever. It was like, it was like literally having the Adams family sit behind me, the real ones. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they were so, they were so nice and so uh, soft spoken and sweet. Ivy was great. And I feel bad for her being alone because that was just, uh, Lux was her soulmate for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They feel like, uh, one of the great love stories to kind of come out of this music or when you look at this music with a lot yeah. of like terrible stories and with love, that's like one of the great. Yeah. Like Sid and Nancy didn't work out too good. No, that definitely was, that was the one I was definitely thinking of in the, my yeah, head. That one, that, that one didn't work out too good. No. Did you, 
Did, did you see Sid Vicious do that solo show stuff when he was in New York with Pure Hell? No, no, that that was before, just before my time. Okay, so like by the time you start going to shows, is there? It's like the stimulators. It feels like that was kind of like the changeover generation, like student teachers. Yeah, that was that. That was the transition period uh, when the stimulators started playing, and uh, we started moving the tables out of the area, the the pit area at at uh, Max's and started skanking <laughs> and then the dead Kennedys came to town and we started beating the shit out of each other, uh, slam dancing. Yeah. It was the, 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 that evolution. I was part of a really cool part of the whole evolution into what is now hardcore punk or now called hardcore. Well, and do, you, and do you remember like, what were the bands that kind of brought that about? Like when the slamming started happening, like obviously the dead Kennedy show you said, but was it like, were there local bands? Cause there's always that, there's that, um, I think it's in America's Hardcore. Henry Rollins talks about them going out to the West Coast, seeing moshing, seeing slamming, bringing that back to DC, and then kind of spreading it around by showing up at shows and and beating up on yeah, kids. Shows and punching us and us punching them back. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. It's like they, they went they went to California, and then California came to us, and then they came to us, and then we all knocked each other around while music played, and uh, it turned into a <laughs> It turned into a, a bit of a thing. Uh, but it, it was like when I saw Jello Biafra, who I still to this day can't believe he's not the singer of the Dead Kennedys anymore. Mm. But to me, he is the singer of the Dead Kennedys and whatever the Dead Kennedys are, not the Dead Kennedys. Um, that's just me being a singer. <laughs> and uh, they played at Bonds, Bonds Casino in Times Square where The Clash played like a week. Um, and they played... And uh, I saw him on stage and perform, and it was like, and then I saw them at, at I, I believe, Irving Plaza, and he was just doing his bit, and uh, the guys from D.C. came up, and they were doing their bit, and it just, it was contagious. We stopped, you know, we were just skanking in place, and then it just turned into, like, a fucking free-for-all, and it evolved into this pretty big, crazy thing that we do now. <laughs> is is that stuff with Boston and the beef between the two kind of overblown? Because there's that photo of you moshing for SSD. Oh. Uh, I was always friends with all those. I'm friends. I try to be friends with everybody, but of course there was uh, the competitive edge between uh, the three cities. Um, but then, you know, people that carry beefs, like I said, are ignorant and don't have many friends. I like to be friends with people. So I made friends with Choke and, and Chris Darty and all the guys in Boston many years ago, as well as Ian and, and every, everybody in, in, uh, in DC, you know, it's like, you know, we're not going to get anywhere not getting along. We we all got we all got pretty far getting along. So, yeah. That's, once again, heroes became my friends, and all, all our bands played together and grew together. You know, as friends and as musicians. Well, yeah, because you guys are covering Void in that Psychos video. Like, so there's obviously like yeah, a DC yeah. love then too. Well, when when you're a kid and you smoke Angel Dust, you uh, <laughs> definitely like Void. <laughs> Like weed is like weed is the, the Grateful Dead, dust is to is void. <laughs> yeah, I can't even believe I can carry on. A, I can't even believe I can carry on a sentence anymore with all the things I've done. Oh my god, the, the dust thing though was huge in New York hardcore at that time, right? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Nothing to be proud of, but no one. I don't think anyone died from it like the heroin. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, the aggressive uh, form of the music. And the aggressive reaction to that drug uh, definitely uh, was a catalyst to many uh, powerful mosh pits, to uh, just to put it uh, politely. Yeah. It, it's interesting how that drug and like quaaludes, obviously, too, are just like 
don't exist anymore. Oh, those, those are great. <laughs> I miss those. <laughs> those. Those are like old guys' addicts. The loons are the one that's got to come back. <laughs> no, they won't come back. But no. uh, yeah, methoquilone was the actual drug. Uh, the 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 compound methoquilone, which turned which was quaaludes, um, and that was made by Roar and Lemon. Lemon seven fourteen was the pill, and uh, it made you very, very mellow and, <laughs> and goofy. That that I think they get. I think they were the ones that they called goofballs. Yeah, they, yeah. They, and that was back then. We had the best to talk drugs. Back then, we had the best drugs. <laughs> There was no fentanyl and everything. What you got is what you got. And usually what you got was really good. So, well, and I guess the other stuff that people are doing around then is like, especially on the Lower East Side is heroin, right? The people who lower the buckets down from a lot of heroin. And it fucked up a lot of people. A lot of kids on our scene died from it. Uh, I fortunately never got into it. I like to go up, not down. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's, a, and that's a, that's a thing that's tragically kind of universal about punk too, is the heroin is something that always seems to show up and it could be in Vancouver. It could be even in Toronto. Yeah. Well, um, unfortunately now, now just a micro dot, yeah. you know, a little a, 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 a dust particle of this fentanyl can kill somebody immediately, which is horrible. And it seems that people are getting off on getting it out there. But um, yeah, I mean, if you look at up, Lemmy motorhead down, Johnny thunder junk, junkie shit, boring, uh, Kurt Cobain, uh, heroin, dead let me live the long pretty long life for being awake for fucking 40 years yeah it's a good argument for why to do speed i guess I'm just, i don't know i can better yeah. say that but or you could go the route of ian mckay and just be nice to everybody and and sell records yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think i think ian's got it going the best you definitely i was going to ask you were you there uh that night of the fierce saturday night live thing when his name was like the password and stuff yeah, I was. I didn't get it. I, I was there and went with my girlfriend, Sherry, to go get a quart of beer. And everyone got in on these. We had these standby tickets. And uh, Quaaludes, once again, a bunch of people got in through a freight elevator and a bunch of Quaaludes I had. And I went to go get a beer with my girl. Everybody got up. And I was in a fire command station banging her under the, <laughs> like, under the stage while everyone was going nuts there. And then we all went downtown. I got, man, I need to remember this. I, I went downtown and I had an egg for like a month to throw at somebody because it was Halloween. So I had this month old egg. And I, I remember I was with all the guys from, from DC and we were going downtown to A7 uh, just out the train. And a girl walked by in this big rock lobster outfit. And everyone was like, Jimmy, hit him with the egg. And I was like, I was like man, I can't do that. Like, Come on, hit him with the egg. Fuck that rock lobster shit. And I threw the egg and I hit the girl with the uh, lost outfit with the egg. And I, I still feel bad. <laughs> 43 years. <laughs> I still feel bad about throwing an egg at a girl in a big foam costume. But, yeah, I was, when you're a little punk rock kid and the older punk rock kids are telling you to do something dumb, you do it. It's those, it's so. those no good DC kids again. <laughs> that, well, there was a set of kids that weren't straight edge in DC. And uh, that's when we were wearing spurs and shit, copying the guys from California. <laughs> I think it was a guy named Jake. It was Jake. It was Chick Lefty. She was crazy. Skinhead girl. Yeah, oh, there was a lot of. Crazy she's a people. very famous Lefty. The skin. She's a very famous person in DC hardcore. Yep, yep, yep. Lefty was uh, is uh, still a good friend of mine. I don't see her anymore, but yeah, 
tough, uh, tough, tough person. That's the legends. That's definitely there's not, yes, not about she, how, she, how she's grew. She's groomed many a skinhead boy. Yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> wild. That's a. Uh, I guess that's the other thing is is that night is so storied in hardcore kind of annals now, but it's just like a handful of you could probably even think of everyone that was there if you had enough time because yeah Jesse you can see Jesse Malin on stage there jump off the stage Ian's yeah. there and they're they're all yelling fuck New York and all you know typical shit um, John Brandon's there too they right were, they were, every yeah yeah like the whole yeah the whole um, the whole scene from DC and New York are pretty much there yeah that got in yeah you know it's 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 funny DC could talk shit but it was being filmed in New York not, not in DC <laughs> Did you? They, they came to us. So. <laughs> Did you ever meet John Belushi? I'm still. No, I didn't meet John Belushi. Never, never met him. Because he would hang he, out. At uh, that was, you know, once again, I was a little. He would hang out at CBs, and he was hanging out with the Dead Boy. There's pictures of him with. I think he played with the Dead Boys once. It was him. Yeah. That was once again a little bit before my time because I was still in the midst of going out, getting punished. So mm -hmm. that was. He was with the older kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't out hanging out. Those are those are older, fancier people than than me being uh, a kid with a dollar in my pocket, not being hardly get, being able to get into the club, let alone uh, hang out with those people. What's the story with you with a chainsaw on stage? I heard a legend of you coming on stage <laughs> with a chainsaw. <laughs> Somebody had a chainsaw. You know, everybody coming from from Jersey and Long Island and whatnot, and bar their dad's trucks and shit. Somebody, I, I think, it might have been Petey Hines who played in Murphy's Line, Chrome Eggs. Um, I think he had a chainsaw in his, in his dad's truck that he drove down to the show. And I took the chainsaw in and we were going on and I, I had the chainsaw backstage. I literally cut a slice in the wall <laughs> and man, I don't know how the fuck I did it and pretty dumb thing to do, but I did it. Um, put, pushed through the crowd with the chainsaw running and got on stage and fully cranked the chainsaw and then shut it off with, with all the smoke coming out of it. And then we started the set and the place went fucking nuts. <laughs> I'm just glad I had the sense not to just start cutting shit up on stage and, and, you know, going, doing a uh, Wendy O. Williams bit. But yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I, made it, I used it as an instrument and it worked. But yeah. The industrial side of Murphy's law. The, that was my industrial phase. It, was, it only lasted a moment. <laughs> awesome. uh, what are your memories of the Donahue show? Uh, I remember, uh, I made them send a limo for, for me and Natalie. Awesome. And uh, I was at my parents' house in Queens and uh, where I'm at now, down the block. Uh, and we were in the limo and we banged, we banged all the way to, <laughs> we banged all the way to 30 Rock. And then we got to 30, you know, you know, when they, you know, when they have the, the fucking tree for Christmas. Yeah. Um, in Rockefeller Plaza. Right there is where, where it was filmed. Like we're in the heart of, of New York City. And, uh, and we're in the green room and, uh, the guy who wrote the book, no, not the book, it was like an article, uh, Peter Blauner. I'll never forget his name. He said, turned out to be like one of these people, you know, when the when the music was getting popular and getting attention, we were on all these fucking shows. And uh, we were, I was in, I think it was New York Magazine, cover, cover mm -hmm. article in New York Magazine. And it was like, uh, the guy came to us, and usually we were very uh, rough with people that wanted to photograph us or interview us that were out of our scene, not, not from a fanzine. And this guy gained our trust, talked how he was so interested in our music scene. And basically, when he was finally done doing his write-up and it was already out, made it like this soap opera with me and some girl that I was like a fan of the band. 
and made, didn't make her look good. Didn't make me look. It made it like this this groupy story thing that had nothing to do with the music, our music scene. Yeah. So it was very disappointing, and we were very hateful towards this guy because he he disappointed us. Go figure. The media disappointed us. Mm. Um. Uh, and and uh, they got him on stage with us, and uh, he didn't get a good reception. Neither neither did Phil because they had us basically. It was like a horseshoe of of the the of the regular aspect of society moms and dad moms and dads and aunts like regular people yeah. and then us in the middle yeah. so they kind of had a then they they planned it like that and they tried to get this big fucking confrontational thing excuse my language out of out of the out of out of us and it, in turn it, it blew up in his fucking face because while sitting down you're sitting when you're filming the stuff you're sitting waiting all the time everyone was making friends with everyone so all the people that he thought was going to hate us turned out loving us. And when it, when it finally went to light and he was on his on his thing trying to trying to instigate, no one no one would jump on it because everyone already made friends with everybody. And then then Natalie up there, who was very well educated and a really smart at the time, not a woman yet, a really smart girl, um, just took him apart <laughs> and. You know, a couple of our friends were silly, like my friend Alexa. But, uh, you know, but it was part of it. But for the most part, I remember an old lady getting up. I was just talking to this young man about what's on his jacket. And it was so nice. And it was just filling Phil Donahue that this lady was like, this is disgusting. No, she was like, I really like the guy. And the guy's like, thank you, lady. It was like totally opposite of what this guy wanted. And between commercials, they would be like, no, uh, argue with Phil. Uh, but I'm like, don't. And I literally told. Finally, they, they were really pushing it. And I finally told this uh this woman that was fucking busting balls. I was like, stop fucking busting my balls and telling me what to do. We're gonna do what we want to do, not what you tell us. And uh, they were trying to make it like I'm the leader of this, this skinhead thing. And I'm like, and, and I do remember part of what I said. It was like there are no leaders in this. We are all together. And I know there was a lot of good points coming from angles, and he hated it. <laughs> I think he was the only one that did hate it because we all really left shaking hands with everybody that was supposed to be our enemy and our, our our and not understand what we're about. And it worked out. And then after the show, Phil uh, comes back, and uh, he uh, I had nothing to say, and Natalie fucking tore him a new asshole because he came back like saying something and like he was he wasn't happy the way it went and we were uh because we won and and she said something to him man and it fucking burned him and he went off and they had to escort him out of the green room and i was hysterical i was like take care later we destroyed him we won it was yeah. great well like if we're if this is a religion that would be one of the books in the bible because every kid watch that video like it was traded around and and sent around and and just like dissected and you see who you could see in the crowd and see who you could name and it just became it was just like one Everybody of the all-time there i was honored oh. I was honored to be up front and be part of it and uh and, and I, I hope i didn't let anybody down i tried my best oh you're awesome man. As, and that, as good and the, as i was back then and now i know that you've been having sex the whole time that explains your cool vibe chilled out vibe oh, on stage <laughs> Bang all the way there and got the limo and banged all the way back to Queens. <laughs> oh, so... We were having fun. It was great. In the back, closed the window on the limo, 
and it just went to town. We were like, <laughs> it, it is like, it was great. oh, it's awesome. It's like, it's such a, it's such a incredible, uh, incredible document of that time period too. And like, and ever, it also shows the difference between, cause you can tell that what they wanted is what they would get later on from when you'd have, see the mentors on Springer or Gigi Allen on Geraldo. You know, where you get these kind yeah, of like not, circus shit where it's not like a family. They want, yeah, they weren't getting a circus from us. They were getting a family of kids yeah. that we were all very close to each other and very, all different beliefs, all different forms of, of, of ways of life from all different lifestyles, but all there for one purpose. And that was to, to uh, support our scene. Well, that's, I find that's the thing that's fascinating about New York because New York is able to hold so many contradictions at the same time. Like you have nausea playing with YDL. Like, yeah. it's just like, uh, <laughs> there's just so much like shit that's contained in New York that just does not seem like it would exist. Like the graffiti stuff happening at the same time that the skinhead stuff is happening and how they're weirdly part of each other's history is just so fascinating. Like just New York is such a, a cultural study in punk. Well, DMS, Doc Martin skin started as a graffiti crew yeah, and still part, pretty much is. <laughs> So, you know, it's skinhead like, graffiti writer. There you go. Well, that's all race, creeds, and colors, too. So much to my chagrin, I, I, you know, I have severe tinnitus right now. I'm losing my hearing. Oh, sorry. To hear and, that. and I have a fractured spine and all this other shit. So, I, I lately, I, I don't even stay. I get it. I get in in time to get on and I get out because mm -hmm. otherwise I, I can't. I lose my voice. I lose my hearing. I lose my voice from yelling so much over trying to be able to hear what I'm saying. I, man, I, I, it's it's getting tough to do shows like I used to do. Them. So you, I think, but, I think there's an a, there's a lack of appreciation on the physical toll that this kind of music takes on people. Yeah, well, I don't jump off the balconies anymore, but it's I still jump off. I'm still jumping off the stage like an idiot. I don't like to be on stage really anymore. I like to be in the crowd. Um, much my uh my uh my band's uh dismay um you know led the last run we just did with um with the rum jacks and the barstool preachers and uh and code two uh or grade two grade two i keep fucking up with their name on <laughs> uh they that was we were playing these clubs that really weren't for us they were these big clubs with uh barricades and i would literally the, the band would do the intro uh we'd set our levels and then i'd step off over the barricade and just play in the crowd yeah, that's I, how I, I do. Yeah, we we did uh we did the fest in uh with the big fucking fest in um in England. I couldn't be on the stage. The stages punk music's not made for these big stages, and and my my upbringing on it hasn't changed my mind on on being part of the crowd and being down with the crowd. Mm -hmm. I don't think barricades or big stages have anything to do with uh, what our community is about. I, I would like when we went, we went on tour of the Foo Fighters and I would just wander the stadium the whole time we were playing, like just like wandering amongst all the people with like as they're trying to find their seats. We did the thing with the Beastie Boys and that was I wasn't on stage much for that either. I was, But then there was no pit. It was just chairs and I would dive off the, the stage into the chairs and get beat up and thrown out. Well, that, that's like pre Lollapalooza Lollapalooza, like the like public enemy yourselves and Beastie Boys all going out together like. Pre-alternative music too. happening. Fishbone. Fishbone was on that too. That's what a lineup. Yeah. Fishbone started on. Fishbone was on the majority of the tour. Uh, Public Enemy stepped in when Fishbone went to film uh, "Back to the Beach" with uh, Annette uh, from the Cello. Yeah, aren't the Cramps in that too? Or no? No, no, no. Uh, I mean, I, on, on, 
it back to the beach? Maybe. I haven't seen it <sighs> in years. Now I got to watch it tonight. Yeah, now me too. You've, you've inspired me to, for what I'm going to see after this. Public Enemy stepped in though, and uh, and actually opened for us. That would, but like that would be such an interesting tour when you're hitting places like, obviously, I'm sure like New York and Los Angeles are fine, but like you're playing all over the place. Like there must have been some weird shows for you guys to kind of go out there and do your thing. Playing big, big arenas. We started playing clubs, and then Lice Hotel broke. And then we went from uh, like like we were playing what well, that's back when uh, uh, colleges had bars and clubs and we played the, the colleges and it was nuts. And then we went to arenas, which was that was crazy. Played the Hollywood yeah. Palladium, dude. Like seventeen, I played the Hollywood Palladium in a tour in my tour in a tour bus. The Beastie Boys got me a tour bus. It must have been yeah, like very like especially trying to like go from playing you know, a, a CB show or even a rich show or like a bigger show where you've got like, you can kind of see all the crowd and you can kind of control the audience. So being in a, a thing like that, where it's not even about controlling the audience it's a hostile audience in some cases. Dude, it was like, it was, I only had 15 minutes, but it was like, <laughs> holy shit, how much trouble can I get in 15 minutes? And um, no matter what, the Boosie Boys took our back, no matter how much dumb shit I did and got in trouble. I do remember them even canceling, not canceling, some of the some of the shows I got in trouble, and uh, and they were like Murphy's Law can't play, and then they were like, then we're not playing, and literally can't. I do recall wow. them canceling like, well, at least the two shows. That's awesome. I, we were doing our bit. I was diving off the stage into the into into chairs. The bouncers beat me up, and uh, it was on. Um, and then the next day, would get out, and the next promoter wouldn't want us to play, and they were like, then we're not playing either. They were they were they were the best to us they they took such good care of the band They're really great guys well it feels like they also you know never lost that connection to hardcore right like didn't ad rock fill in for bass with the chromags for one show or something like and, and then well then they when we were on that tour with them they would do this before public enemy stepped in and when fishbone was out there was a little uh a couple days where they came up and would dress in like clown outfits or some shit and they were doing this band trip hammer it was like their version of Spinal Tap. So before we would go on, they would come out dressed different. Not you didn't even know it was them, and do this like corny, fun punk band uh, trip happen. <laughs> and nobody knew it. They we jump out, do our dumb shit, and then they'd come out and do their bit. That's it fucking. It was so much fun, unbelievably. But that was like you guys had already tried to tour America by that point too, right? Because you toured before the album, like on the demo. Yeah, we toured. Yeah, in living six guys in a van, sleeping all together in a cargo van. Uh, <laughs> and PD Hines at the time, who later joined the Cro-Mags, uh, got mononucleosis. So we were on our way to get to California and play the Olympic Auditorium with the Bad Brains and Dead Kennedys and all these crazy shows. And this fucking guy gets mono uh, halfway across the country. Holy and shit. You know, now we'd put him on a bus and send him home and grab any kid at the next show. Yeah. We, we came home and then he bailed on us to go join the Chromax. Damn. To go on, if I may recall, he, he left to go on to bigger and better things. And then like a month later, we got the Beastie Boys tour. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Uh, what was the, uh, like after the Beastie Boys tour, was there like a lot of like label interest and, and sort of like um, excitement around the band or was it? Yeah, there was a ton of shit, and I fell for a lot of it, and now I'm still regretting it. 
Um, we we dealt we did that shit with uh, Profile Records, who mm-hmm. just released our first record again without our knowledge and without our permission or our input. Real, and, that's uh, not official. That that thing that came out. You know, that's an official release. That's not uh, oh. sanctioned by the band. Are we uh, completely against us? And I let a lot of record labels know. A lot, a lot of record stores know. The record label put it out. I mean. They could have spoke to me about it, and maybe we could have remastered some stuff, added some stuff. They just—it's a money grab because uh, there's revision of copyright. Uh, in, in let's get uh, crazy now, in America, which after a ridiculous amount of time for a record label to cash in on the artist, um, the the uh, the artist has a a, a very small uh, window of opportunity to regain their copyrights. Uh, to to their to their uh, product to their to their music, um, and there's like two more years before revision comes in for me, and this is their quick money grab uh, again, to uh, to make more money on the band and not pay the band anything. They they haven't paid the band anything in over thir- in thirty or thirty thirty plus years. And how is that know, not it, recouped, like at least several times over at this point? It it, ha- it has. They only yeah. had, I believe the only the first pressing was thirty thousand on the Beastie Boys. We sold them all. Yeah, and they did nothing to forward the band's career. Um, they only did enough to recoup their costs and make their their profit without re-releasing stuff, pushing stuff. There was no on that whole tour. There was no posters. There was no promote. There was zero promotion. We were just doing it all on our own on our own leg. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, a lot of people could say, you know, I know Harley's complained about it and tried to sue the label and stuff. I'm not looking to blow money and waste time like that because uh, uh, we did sign contracts when we were kids, um, <laughs> not knowing anything. And uh, you know, you're 17 years old and a, a label wants to put your record out. All right. Yeah. DIY, DIY. I didn't have any fucking money to buy a slice of pizza. Never mind to put my own record out. You know, bands that put their own records out had probably better jobs and, 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 and supportive parents. We didn't have that. So when this opportunity knocked, um, we, we saw it as a generous thing. And um, and being naive and young and dumb, we trusted people. And uh, the label got us our own lawyer. <laughs> Go figure that. You get the lawyer from the label, which we were <laughs> fucking doomed right there, dude. So we uh, we signed shit that, that, that fucked us. That, that, that's the, and that's the thing Jerry A brought up when he was on the show. Like, the only reason Poison Idea was able to kind of put out records is because pig champion had a dubious but had income coming in at that time and like you know you need you need money to do this shit like you're saying earlier this shit's not done for free and like if someone's going to pay for it that's going to be the way it comes out but i think it was actually daryl jennifer taught talked about when he's on the show just like what the bad brains had to do to get records out and get their music out there because they gave up a lot of stuff in terms of rights and in terms of ownership of different recordings, because it was just about trying to get the music out at any, at any cost. Yeah. A lot of people ask what with Murphy's law, not putting out more records. It's like, I see the band as a live band. I not, I never consider myself a musician. I'm more of an entertainer. I'm not a writer. Um, the recordings and, are great and, though. Like you're, you're downplaying the recordings. They're always, when you do put out a record, they're always fucking great. I have been blessed to be in great studios with great producers. And the producer is the person that makes the music happen, really. Mm. If you listen to the Germs uh, GI record and then you listen to the Germs live, it's like, wow, that record is amazing. And I do believe Joan Jett was the producer of that record. Uh, no, um, she, she uh, according to what people have told in the podcast, she was uh, 
not as heavily involved in that record. The Bikini Kill record, she was very involved in, but like, I think Joan was at a rougher patch when she was doing that Germs record, according to what has been told on this podcast. We were just lucky to be in the studios. I was in some amazing analog studios with really great producers. So if anything, through the influence of the label, to give them any fucking credit, which they <laughs> they they hooked me up with the right people to record with, and and that's just smart for their investment uh, to make sure that the product that they're going to put out is 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 sellable. But once we were selling them, they didn't support the band or help the band grow, which uh, which which is where I I uh, don't like. And now years later down the line, they're still putting their hands in, in my pocket and and not paying it back. They've already profited from the band. They put the record out. I, I haven't seen a dime. So, I mean, it's not all about money, but it is all about money when a fucking company is robbing you. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. If, if It's not all about money, but if someone's making money, the people that made the product should get, <laughs> you know, compensated in some way. Yeah, we, we have, there they were supposed to, uh, there's supposed to be quarterly reports on, on sales, never received anything. There's, they, they still haven't reported anything and they just put the record out now, but, do I want to uh, to put get a get my lawyer now and throw money at my lawyer to go after these people for a contract that they can't even find? Um, how do you say you own something? Like if I get pulled over with my car, I have to show registration or a title. They say they still have a contract. Where's the contract? They're not producing it. But now to 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 get them to prove that, I need to pay a lawyer to get them at the court. I need to pay a lawyer. And, and then this is time and time is money when it comes to a lawsuit. So I'd rather just sit on my hands and then get, get my, uh, my revision rights and, and move forward. You know, but fortunately they're going to fucking, you know, this is the, they're pushing the record out again. I mean, I, I put the record out years ago with ice cream records where we put the whole back catalog out of, of all of four records or five records. And, uh, just to say fuck you to them. And they didn't say anything. Cause I, then that proved to me, that they didn't have anything to get, to prove that they had the rights to the record. So now it's hard. I'm still up in the air what to do right now, but I, I still have about a year and a half to get my revision back. So I'm going to focus that, not my attention on that, to, to actually own the rights. You put up the demo on vinyl a couple years ago, though, right? Or a few years ago now? The demo came out in Japan on vinyl. Oh, so I'm Japan. looking to do that again. Yeah, yeah. definitely and then, put that uh, out. We did, a, we did a, cover, a cover record of... You know, everybody's asking us to do uh, do a song on this, do a song on that. So we would throw do a cover song, and then I compiled so many cover songs that I made a record, a cover record called "Covered," um, with a Waffle House theme. So it was like scattered, smothered, covered. Yeah, that's awesome. And it looked like didn't say a Waffle House; it said Murphy's Law. And the CD was an actual waffle, and we were printing them in my in my at my desk. We had I had a, an older computer that had. Uh, the two the two decks in it so we were just printing our own labels and our own cd do it diy we were making a we, were, we had our own printing press going of uh of cds but now i think uh i think i'm gonna try to put that out on vinyl because it's never been out on vinyl well and that demo seems and, uh, so awesome too like that demo like you know you're saying it's a live band and obviously i saw you guys later on but the the songs on that demo are raging well for being 17 at the time yeah pretty 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 funny that we could even put songs together yeah well that's the thing but like you look at all this stuff now like people still minor threat just put out the outtakes from out of step the other week or like yeah. Ian just put those out right like the stuff that was being made by these teenagers back then still has 
impact, you know, 40 dude, plus. Dude, you listen later. to Bubba, du- Bubba Dupree's guitar work on Void, dude. It's, it's like, crazy. The greatest. Kid. It's great. Yeah. Stuff. I mean, Baker's stuff. Dude, we were fucking 16, 17 year old, old kids putting out records. I mean, even though it was 500 of them, but who, who'd have thunk it that putting out 500 records, now these records are worth $5,000 each. <laughs> Or ten thousand dollars, you go to go to the misfits. Yeah, first of all, who's going to spend that much money on a fucking piece of plastic? I mean, download the music and feed the homeless. That's what I. But I mean, to own a seven inch and spend ten thousand dollars, I can't can't imagine. My friend sold a (laughs) fixed vengeance for ten thousand dollars cash. On like just straight up, the guy flew in, met the guy at the airport, gave the guy the record, he got handed the money, and the guy flew out that night. Like a, a vinyl, a vinyl drug deal. It's crazy. Like just like unbelievable that like handfuls of kids. But then you look at who's in these handfuls of kids. Like you brought up Rick Rubin, and obviously, yeah. you know he's in Hose, and Hose is playing with Vatican Commandos with Moby. I yeah. sang, I sang a show with Hose. I I played for a minute in Hose. What? Yeah, I did. Go going to the zoo, zoo, zoo going to the zoo. I said before I was far the the entertainer that I am now. I was very insecure on stage, but I played on stage at CBGB's with uh, with Hose. Yeah, that's awesome! Wow, yeah. I love those Hose records too. Like that's like I love that New York yeah. noise rock sound too. Only only the astronaut knows the truth. I think one of the songs is yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Rick, Rick and I were good friends when he was in college. It was it was. Uh, he was a great friend to me, a good guy. And now he's now he's like a monk. <laughs> yeah. If you see the stuff, he I mean, I don't know where the fuck he's been or what mountain he's been on, but he's coming down and he's talking some really positive spiritual shit. Yeah. He'd be rolling around naked in hundred dollar bills if I was him. <laughs> I would have the best <laughs> weed, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I'd be coming in guacamole, but puppies licking it off me, fucking filming it. <laughs> I'd be on a fucking 24 karat gold on Davidson. I'd fully pimp it out. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, Jimmy, this has been unbelievable. And anytime you want to come on this show and talk about any of this stuff, you know, the door is always open. Yeah, man. Just reach out next. Uh, we leave Friday to go out for two weeks with agnostic front. And then uh, new year's Eve is the 40th anniversary. We play in Brooklyn at the Kingsland. And then after that, I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to try to uh, take a break for a little bit. I think and try to write some shit. Maybe. Um, Cause we have, we have a bunch of stuff recorded already for a new record. Um, it's just not complete yet. And I really want to, I actually have the record cover. So the record cover is done. So there is a record coming out because usually the record's done and there's no cover. But now I have, this is motivating me and pushing me to finish this thing Well, up. I know many an Edgeman that's broken edge in a Murphy's Law pit. So, you know, I think you've medicated a whole generation. Don't break edge over me. Thank you, Jimmy, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Jimmy will be back for a part two at some point in the future. And once again, Kingsland at uh, New Year's Eve, you better go out there and check out in Brooklyn, New York, and check out Murphy's Law for their 40th anniversary show, a milestone for one of the greatest bands to ever do it. And that will do it for this week's episode coming up on the next episode of turned at a punk. We're just going to go from uh, strength to strength from pulling teeth from one of my favorite bands to put it on LP last year and rain from uh, uh, a, a day of mourning from uh, uh, integrity from dirge 
Dominic Romeo is going to be on the show. And believe me, this is a good one. This, this is awesome. If you know Dom just from his current life as a uh, American hardcore uh, mover and shaker running the incredible A389 records, uh, you only know half the story. Because to me, it's, it's Dom who I met in the pit just before Sick of It All played in Toronto at Club Shanghai. And we, we, we go deep. We go way back and we talk about a lot of stuff. This is a fantastic episode. I'm excited for you to hear it. And that is it for this show this week. Remember, as always, uh, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and different races because we're not talking about politics here. This is just basic human rights shit. People deserve to live free from hate and violence and discrimination. So if there's organizations in your community that are affecting positive change, I'm sure they could benefit from your your volunteering, your your time if you have time or you know financial support if you have financial support because it'll feel better if you start affecting the change you want to see in this world. Speaking about affecting the change you want to see, you can do that in punk. You can start a band, start a fanzine, hell, you could start a whole scene. You could invent a style of moshing with your friends that people are doing. 40 years later, all over the world, you know, like anyone can do this shit. So, so do it. Speaking of doing things, sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. They're literally dead weight. And like, you just get them out of your body and they can perform miracles with that. I've seen it happen. And, uh, try meditating. What's the worst that can happen? Maybe it works for you. Maybe it doesn't. It takes a couple of tries, though. I promise you, from my experience. And hell, don't take my word for it. There's people that do this shit that are way more successful than I do. Uh, I do. I am. <laughs> and they do it a lot more consistently, probably, too. All right. It's been a long holiday weekend. Th- thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.